Let me invite you to join me once again this evening in our journey through the Psalms, where we have made our way to the final five in the collection, all of which begin and end with the Hebrew hallelujah, or praise the Lord in English. And tonight we turn specifically to the second of those final five hallelujah psalms, which is the 147th in the larger collection. So Psalm 147. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant, and praise is becoming. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He counts the number of the stars. He gives names to all of them. Great is our Lord and abundant in strength. His understanding is infinite. The Lord supports the afflicted. He brings down the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Sing praises to our God on the lyre, who covers the heavens with clouds, who provides rain for the earth, who makes grass to grow on the mountains. He gives to the beast its food and to the young ravens which cry. He does not delight in the strength of the horse, He does not take pleasure in the legs of a man. The Lord favors those who fear him, those who wait for his loving kindness. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion, for he has strengthened the bars of your gates. He has blessed your sons within you. He makes peace in your borders. He satisfies you with the finest of the wheat. He sends forth his command to the earth. His word runs very swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters the frost like ashes. He casts forth his ice as fragments. Who can stand before his cold? He sends forth his word and melts them. He causes his wind to blow and the waters to flow. He declares his words to Jacob, his statutes and his ordinances to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any nation And as for his ordinances, they have not known them. Praise the Lord. Father, we know from this book and from these last few psalms of it that we are to praise you, that we are to sing hallelujah to you. And so in spite of all that may trouble us tonight, in spite of very real reasons we have for concern about various things in our our lives and and even the things we've prayed about tonight. Help us to praise you, to give you glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we said a moment ago, this psalm both begins and ends with an exclamation of praise, with Hallelujah in the Hebrew, or praise the Lord in English. But we should also note that in between those two bookends of praise are several inducements for us to join in the Hallelujah chorus, as it were. In verse 7, we have a call to sing to the Lord. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Sing praises to our God on the lyre. And in verse 12, we are reminded specifically that Jerusalem, the city of God, should praise the Lord. And since we are the city of God, today let us heed that call. Let us be people who praise God, verse 12, who give thanks to Him, verse 7, and who do so with singing. 
And then up in verse 1, notice the list of descriptors concerning the praise of the people of God. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant, and praise is becoming. Did you hear the descriptors? Praise is good, it is pleasant, and it is becoming. Or we might say that our praise pleases God, our praise pleases ourselves when we offer it, and our praise pleases others too. Praise is good, which means that it pleases the Lord. Praise is pleasant or enjoyable, which means it pleases us when we engage in it. And praise is becoming, which means that it's attractive to others when they hear us doing it. I wonder if you've ever thought about those latter two ideas. If you've ever stopped and pondered the fact that, first of all, when our hearts are really into it, whether the praise be sung or whether it simply be words of praise in our everyday speech, speech, it is actually quite a pleasurable thing to praise the Lord. It is pleasant, says the psalmist. I hope you experience that when we sing together or when you sing together as families or on your own. When I stand up here to preach, I usually experience some of the most pleasant and angst-free moments of my week because when I'm behind this pulpit, most all of my thoughts about all other things recede far into the background of my consciousness and my concentration is given over to speaking well of God. And when I'm doing that, I'm satisfied. All the things that I might be worried about, tempted by, frustrated about, seem to go to the side when I'm speaking well of God. The rest of my week maybe sometimes seems pleasant to me, maybe sometimes it doesn't. But when I'm giving myself over to focus earnestly on speaking well of my God, then I'm satisfied. And I suggest it will be the same for you and for me in other parts of my week when I'm not standing behind this stand. If we will really learn to give attention to this matter of praising the Lord, we'll be happy. Life will simply be much more pleasant, much more enjoyable, both in the moments of praise and then even as we carry its afterglow with us, if we will simply give ourselves over to praising God. And I personally just need to do a better Service to myself and to my God in this regard, and maybe you do as well. Praise is pleasant. It is enjoyable in the doing. And not only does praise please the one doing it there in verse 1, but at the end of the verse we're reminded that praise pleases others too. Praise is becoming. To borrow from dictionary.com and its definition of the word becoming, we could say praise, quote, gives a pleasing effect or attractive appearance as to a person or a thing. That's what becoming means. When something is becoming, it is pleasing to those who observe it. You're acting in a becoming way, in a way that pleases other people and makes them think well of you. Or you're acting in an unbecoming way that doesn't please them and that makes them think poorly of you. And praise is becoming. Not only does it please God, which is most important of all, 
And not only does it please the one doing the praise, which is a blessing from God's hand, but praise is also pleasing many times to those who hear us doing it. I've had an unbeliever visit our service and comment to me after, boy, does your congregation ever sing. And though this person does not really comprehend the reason why we sing, though she does not yet know, in other words, the God to whom we sing, yet the very fact that we sing and the way in which we sing was bearing a becoming testimony, an attractive testimony to her about something. And it may be that such singing and such a testimony will lead some people to want to inquire what that something is all about. Our praise, in other words, may be a part of God's providence in wooing other people to the beauty of Christ to whom we sing. And so I urge you to keep on singing and to excel still more. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Sing praises to our God on the lyre, for it is pleasant and praise is becoming. And then do notice not only that praise is pleasant and not only that it is becoming, but also that it's simply good as well, still in verse 1. Praise is good. It is good to sing praises to our God, which means that even if no one else is listening, and even if you praise God sometimes for whatever reason with not as much personal pleasure as you would like, it's still a good thing to do. It still honors the Lord if you will sincerely praise Him. And that's most important of all. So then, Psalm 147 is indeed a hallelujah psalm. It's a psalm of praise. But then notice, as is so often the case, that this psalm not only speaks about praise, and it not only calls us to praise, but it also catalogs a host of reasons for our praise. Why should we praise the Lord? What is so praiseworthy about Him? This is an excellent psalm for answering that question. And let me say, as an aside, that since this psalm that answers the why of our praise, since this psalm uses the word thanksgiving, and since this psalm lists reasons for thanksgiving, and since some of the reasons even have to do with God's provision of a harvest, this might be a good psalm to revisit in four weeks as you seek to turn your heart toward the Lord on Thanksgiving Day. And maybe your praise perhaps using this psalm, will be becoming in the ears of your family with whom you celebrate. But holiday season or no, this psalm, as I say, is a good psalm for answering the question of why, for reminding us of the reasons why we praise the Lord. Not only because God's praise is good in and of itself and pleasant in and of itself and becoming in and of itself, but because, as the psalm reminds us, God himself gives us many reasons for singing that praise. And I want to show you seven of them here in Psalm 147. Seven reasons for praising the Lord. Seven reasons for our hallelujahs. Number one, praise the Lord for his mercy. Verses 2 and 3, and then also in the first half of verse 6. Praise the Lord for his mercy. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Verse 6, the Lord supports the afflicted. 
He gathers the outcasts of Israel. Who were the outcasts of Israel there in verse 2? Well, there were the lepers and many others like them who for one reason or another had to live separately from the rest of the people. And then as we see in Jesus' ministry, there were those who because of their own sin had made themselves odious to their neighbors, prostitutes, adulteresses, tax collectors, and so on. And maybe the psalmist, as he speaks about the outcasts, also has in mind those who were simply poor or uneducated in Israel, who were often looked down upon in many cultures and societies. But for whatever reason a person might be an outcast in Israel, the Lord is the kind of God, verse 2, who gathers them together from their scattered places and makes them to be welcomed members of his family. And don't we see that powerfully in the ministry of Jesus as he ministers and and loves the lepers and as he gathers many of his followers from among the tax collectors, from among the demon-possessed, from among the sexually promiscuous, and from among the uneducated and untrained men. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. And isn't that our story as well? For we all, in the sense of our standing before a holy God, we are all outcasts, are we not, because of our sin? And yet the gospel is the news that by his sinless life and his sacrificial death and his resurrection on the third day, Jesus is gathering the scattered outcasts together to himself and then to one another as well and making them into his family, the family of God. That is how the Lord builds up, verse 2, his New Testament Jerusalem. By gathering outcasts, aliens, strangers, 'er ne'er-do-wells, and covering our sins, and calling us his children, and progressively transforming us into the image of his only begotten Son. And this is reason for praise, isn't it? Tonight? It's reason to sing to the Lord with thanksgiving, sing praises to our God on the lyre, because... Of God's mercy to us, the outcasts. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. And then still talking about his mercy. Notice his mercy also toward the brokenhearted, verse 3, and the wounded, the afflicted in verse 6. And that may be you tonight. Maybe spiritually, maybe mentally, maybe emotionally, maybe physically you are wounded afflicted, brokenhearted. And this psalm reminds you that God sees and God knows. And if you are his child, though I cannot tell you how and though I cannot tell you when, these verses say in black and white that he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. The Lord supports the afflicted. And he will do that about the very things that we prayed for earlier in the service. And so if you're among the brokenhearted, the wounded, the afflicted, in the words of William Cooper, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen soon, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. So that's one reason tonight.
for which we ought to sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. And then a second reason is this. Praise the Lord not only for his mercy, but for his infinite understanding. Verses 4 and 5. Praise the Lord for his infinite understanding. He counts the number of the stars. He gives names to all of them. Great is our Lord and abundant in strength. His understanding is infinite. Some of you may have seen in the news in recent days that whereas scientists, astronomers, had previously estimated that the universe consists of between 100 and 200 billion galaxies, a recent study has indicated that the prior estimates only logged 10% of what is now thought to be an accurate count. Scientists are now estimating, in other words, that the universe consists not of 100 to 200 billion galaxies, but of 1,000 to 2,000 billion, or 1 to 2 trillion galaxies. Not 1 to 2 trillion stars, 1 to 2 trillion star systems, each containing billions of its own stars. And that discovery is an amazing tribute to the image of God and man, that scientists have been able to come up with the learning and the equipment and the intellectual persistence to arrive at such a discovery. Man is an amazing creature indeed. But what of man's maker, the psalm would ask us? Not only did he create the men who were so marvelously able to estimate the number of the galaxies, but he created the one to true trillion galaxies which each, with each of their billions of stars. Great is our Lord and abundant in strength. And verse 4 tells us further that God counts every single star in each of these one to two trillion galaxies and that he's given each of them names. And just to put that into perspective, our galaxy alone, the Milky Way, is estimated to have at least around 100 billion stars. And there are one to two trillion other galaxies. And so while we rightly marvel at the men and women who have been able to study and observe and calculate and give us estimates of the numbers of galaxies in the universe and the numbers of stars in many galaxies. What kind of God must he have that he can hold all of this in his mind so accurately, so completely, that he knows the precise number of the one to two trillion galaxies and the precise number of the billions of stars in each one, and he knows these things so minutely that he's given every star a name he counts the number of the stars he gives names to all of them great is our Lord and abundant in strength his understanding is infinite and that is reason to praise the Lord number three praise the Lord for his justice verse 6b praise the Lord for his Justice. He brings down the wicked to the ground. The same God, in other words, who has all the stars in his mind, is also watching intently what men do with his laws here on this little planet Earth. 
And we needn't be fooled into thinking that just because he does not always judge sin immediately, that somehow it is slipping his notice. No, no. A day of reckoning is coming for many sinners even in this life on which they will stumble and fall because of their sins, verse 6b. And for every sinner who is outside of Christ, the day of reckoning is coming in which they will finally stumble and be cast into the lake of fire. He brings down the wicked to the ground. And this is given in a hallelujah song. This is given as a reason for praise, which may at first sound strange to us, But I think the point is that in the same way the Lord supports the afflicted in verse 6a, so also he deals justly with those who afflict them in verse 6b. You don't ever have to wonder, in other words, if the child molesters, the child abusers, the thieves, the murderers, the drug dealers, and so on, are finally going to get their just desserts. For one of the ways that the Lord supports the afflicted as well as upholding his own holiness, is by bringing down the wicked to the ground. So praise the Lord for his justice. And then, praise the Lord, number four, for his provision. Verses 8 and 9, and then the second half of verse 14. Praise the Lord for his provision, who covers the heavens with clouds, who provides rain for the earth, who makes grass to grow on the mountains. He gives to the beast its food and to the young ravens which cry, verse 14b, he satisfies you with the finest of the wheat. Sometimes we complain when, verse 8, the sky is covered with clouds and the rain is drizzling down. But we shouldn't. Because God is using that rain, verse 8 tells us, to make the grass grow on the mountains. And other things grow in other places, like feed corn and hay and so on. So that the mountain goats and the ravens in verse 9, and the cattle and the chickens and all sorts of other animals will have food. God cares about the animals. And he's making wheat to grow for the humans as well, verse 14. And we eat some of those beasts that he's caring for as well, up in verses 8 and 9. And all of this is a reminder that the Lord is our provider, that he is Jehovah Jireh. As Paul told the idolaters in Lystra, it is the Lord who did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food And gladness, the Lord's the one that does that. And he does it for both man and beast. Even for beasts like the raven, verse 9, that we're probably not going to eat. His mercies are over all his works, we recently saw. He cares about ravens and sparrows and cattle and mountain goats. And so should we. But specifically, these verses were written for man so that man would remember how God, by sending rain and other blessings, is providing for us Two, and I hope you'll remember that when you open your refrigerator and when you sit down before a plate full of food at Thanksgiving or any other meal, God is the one who sent the right combination of rain and sun and other things so that the wheat came in, so that you could have those dinner rolls, and so that the corn grew, 
Both the corn on your own cob and the corn that fed that pig or turkey or catfish that you're sitting down to eat. Who covers the heavens with clouds, who provides rain for the earth, who makes grass to grow on the mountains. He gives to the beast its food and to the young ravens which cry. He satisfies you with the finest of the wheat. And of course, God's provision is not limited to agriculture but extends to health and finances and jobs and children and needed wisdom and so many other things that he gives both to the righteous and the unrighteous. So praise the Lord for his provision. And remember, as we read in Psalm 67, that God blesses us. God provides for us. God puts the wheat in the fields and the money in the bank accounts for us so that all the ends of the earth may fear him. Praise the Lord for his provision and make good use of it among the nations. And then notice how God's provision continues to be a theme on into verses 10 and 11 as well. He does not delight in the strength of the horse. He does not take pleasure in the legs of a man. The Lord favors those who fear him, those who wait for his loving kindness. The psalmist is still here talking about provision. Verse 10, he's talking about provision by, the, by way of reminder that it is the Lord and not merely the furrow plowing strength of the man and the horse. It is the Lord that makes the crops to grow. And verse 11, he's talking about provision by showing us particularly that the Lord provides when we wait for him. And so verses 10 and 11, like verses 8 and 9 before them, are still about provision. Verses 10 and 11 remind us not only that God is provider, but that it is God who is provider, and not man and not horse. Verse 10 clues us in on the fact that God does not need the beasts or the man that he uses to plow the fields. And verse 11 shows us that it is well for us when we remember that fact. When we wait on the Lord, in other words, instead of only trusting in ourselves, taking matters into our own hands. God and not the horse and not the man is the one to be impressed with when the crops come in, verse 10. And therefore God is the one, verse 11, who ought to be feared and trusted to provide. And this too is reason to praise him. We should just stop and think about it sometimes and marvel at the fact and praise God for the fact that he doesn't need us or our horses or our machinery or our technology, that God isn't impressed with our strength, that God doesn't look down like we do on a world-class athlete or on a world-class astronomer or on a world-class anything else. God doesn't look down on the strengths of men and say, how on earth does he do that? He loves us. He delights in us using his gifts and he delights in us in other ways and he uses the fact that we use his gifts but he does not delight in his creatures, verse 10, in the sense of being impressed with them as though they were the ones that were really making things happen on planet earth. As though the strength of the horse and the strength of the man behind it were the ultimate reason why the crops grow. And while we are often impressed with our fellow creatures, And that's not always a bad thing. God yet reminds us that we must wait on him and fear him rather than mere mortals. He 
is the truly strong one. He is the one who holds the rain in his hands and the sunshine and the food and everything else needful for you and I and planet Earth. He is the sufficient one. He is the provider. And so praise the Lord that while he uses these great workhorses, verse 10, that are astonishing in their mass, if you stand next to them, and while he uses the farmers in verse 10b and the astronomers and the preachers, yet they are merely tools in his hand. But God is the sufficient one. God is the provider. And therefore, sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Sing praises to our God on the lyre, who covers the heavens with clouds, who provides rain for the earth, who makes grass to grow on the mountains. He gives to the beast its food and to the young ravens which cry. He does not delight in the strength of the horse. He does not take pleasure in the legs of a man. The Lord favors those who fear him, those who wait for his Loving kindness. Praise the Lord for his provision. Number five, praise the Lord for his protection. In verses 12, 13, and 14. Praise the Lord for his protection. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion, for he has strengthened the bars of your gates. He has blessed your sons within you. He makes peace in your borders. Here's God, very simply, keeping invaders out of Jerusalem with strong gates in verse 13a, and so that the young men can grow up strong within the city, verse 13b, and so that peace reigns in the land, in verse 14. That isn't always the lot that he assigns for his people, but when we live in a time of peace and safety, which by and large we do today in this country, we should praise God for it. Praise God tonight that you showed up at this building with no fear that armed men would burst through the doors and begin shooting or lock us inside and burn the building down over our heads. That thought never crossed your mind, I assume. Praise God that none of you will go home tonight and lie awake with a baseball bat in your hand in the bed because you're afraid that someone any minute might break down your doors and attack your family. Praise God that war is not in our streets and that very few of our sons in recent decades have had to march off to it in foreign lands. It may not always be this way. God sometimes blesses us and teaches us and purges us and disciplines us with a lack of safety. But tonight and in these days of relative peace, we should praise the Lord for his protection of us. And then in the sixth place, praise the Lord for the seasons. Verses 15 through 18. Praise the Lord for the seasons. He sends forth his command to the earth. His word runs very swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters the frost like ashes. He casts forth his ice as fragments. Who can stand before his cold? He sends forth his word and melts them. He causes his wind to blow and the waters to flow. Here's a description in verses 16 and 17 of the onset of winter, and then in verse 18 of the replacement of winter with spring, when the snow melts and the waters and streams and creeks flow once again, like Narnia when Aslan returns. It's probably not hard for most of us to be glad for the coming of spring after the ice and the snow 
in our yearly experience, uh, verses 16 and 17. When those things are gone, it's probably not hard for us to be happy about it. But do we praise God for spring? This is a psalm about praising God, isn't it? So do you praise God when spring comes or when the autumn colors begin to blaze in the treetops? And what about when the winter sets in? Verses 16 and 17, with its snow and its frost and its ice and the cold at the end of verse 17 that often just shuts us down. This is a psalm of praise. The psalmist is praising God, in other words, for the onset of an icy winter. And therefore we should too. Not least because of the pure white of the snow, which reminds us, Isaiah chapter 1, of how clean we become through the gospel. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. But also, more to the point of this psalm, we should praise God even for the harshness of winter because it is a reminder that God, and not we, is sovereign over our days. Winter reminds us that God is God and that we are not. And so a big storm comes and the trees are covered with ice and the snow is piled up between your ankles and your knees and the roads are slick and the temperature is three degrees and the pace of life begins to freeze over as well because there's much that we cannot do and there are plans that we have to cancel and meetings that have to be postponed and maybe sometimes the power goes out and we find ourselves saying, who can stand before this cold? And then we remember that it is his cold, verse 17, and we realize that it's God who has changed our plans and that it is therefore God who is sovereign over our days. The snow and ice and freezing cold, in other words, are one way in which the Lord reminds us that the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. The mind of man plans his way, and it's right to do that, but the Lord directs his steps. Remember that this winter. And instead of complaining about the snow, instead of kicking against the goads of the ice, Just submit to the providence of God and see these things as reminders that your times are in his hand. And then stop and praise him that he and not you is God. And then praise him for spring as well, verse 18. When the freely flowing water and the return of life to the land reminds you of the flowering of the gospel of Christ that brings life, which is even more beautiful into once barren places. Praise the Lord for the seasons. And then finally, number seven, praise the Lord for his word. Verses 19 and 20. Praise the Lord for his word. He declares his words to Jacob, his statutes and his ordinances to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any nation. And as for his ordinances, they have not known them. Praise the Lord. When the psalmist wrote those words, Israel was privileged among all the nations of the earth as the only nation to have had God's word given to them the way God gave it through Moses and through the others of the prophets. God's word comes, we just read, and and changes the seasons, and that happens across the earth, but in the way that God speaks through Moses and through the prophets in the Old Testament, only Israel 
heard his voice there. The Babylonians didn't have the books of Moses. The Philistines didn't have the prophets of the Lord. And no one else did either. And the psalmist uses here, or pauses here, at the end of all else for which he has praised his God, and he says, Lord, thank you that among all the peoples of the earth, you've given your word to us. You've chosen us as the recipients of this precious treasure. And the idea in these final verses is not that the psalmist is saying, we got your word because we are so special. The idea is that your word, God, is so special, and it's a tremendous privilege that it's actually come to us. What makes us special is that we've been given this great privilege of being the possessors of your word. Let me say that again. The idea here is not that Israel got God's word because Israel was so special, but that God's word is special, and it was a tremendous privilege that it actually came to them. What made them special was that they were given the great privilege of being possessors of God's word. Now, praise God, we live in a time in which the Word of God is no longer confined to one nation or people. We heard about that earlier. It's been translated and continues to be translated and preached into thousands of different languages. And so no ethnic group and no nation receiving the Word of God today could speak like the psalmist does in verse 20 when he says, He has not dealt thus with any nation. Because God has brought his word to many nations. And that in itself is reason for praise. The dissemination in this New Testament era of the word of God to the four corners of the earth. And yet there is still a sense in which not as a a nation or a people, but as the people of God. There is still a sense in which we can say with the psalmist here, he declares his words to Jacob, his statutes and his ordinances to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any nation And as for his ordinances, they have not known them. There's still a way that we, as the people of God, can say, God, in a special way, you've given your word to us. We can't talk that way as a nationality, but we can talk that way as the people of God. Because while all the nations of the earth and many tribes as well have access to the word of God in ways that were not so when the psalm was written, yet the fact remains that as regards understanding of the word of God, as regards really getting what the Bible is saying, God's people are still unique among all the peoples of the earth. For, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, a natural man, an unconverted man in other words, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised, which means that while verses 19 and 20 no longer apply to the access that people have to the Bible, those verses do still apply in a manner of speaking in terms of our ability to understand what it says to really hear the words of God in this book. In that sense, your pagan neighbors as yet have not known them, verse 20. Does what I'm saying make sense? Old Testament Israel had access to the word of God that was unique among all the nations of the earth. And New Testament believers have an understanding of the word of God by the power of the spirit of God that is unique among all the people of the earth. God intervened for us, each of us who's in Christ. God intervened 
at a particular point in our lives and opened our eyes to behold wonderful things from his law. And he continues to do that. But he hasn't dealt thus with any other group of people besides those who are in Christ. He hasn't dealt thus with the world at large. And we see evidence of that fact in the way some of our friends and family who have the Bible sitting right there on their bookshelf have no interest in the word of God at all. And in the way some of them, even though they have read the Bible, have all sorts of misconceptions about God and themselves and the way of salvation. They can't understand it because these things are spiritually appraised and they don't have the Holy Spirit. And we see this fact in the way that others that we know do not accept as valid even what they do properly understand in the Scriptures. And once again, the idea is not that we got to understand God's Word because we were so special. The idea is that His Word is so special that it's a tremendous privilege that God has actually enabled you and me, many of us, to be the ones who are able to understand it and able to receive It in our souls. What makes us special is not anything in ourselves, but that we've been given this great privilege of being the recipients of the word of God. And along those lines, we can still say with the psalmist as the people of God today, he declares his words to Jacob, his statutes and his ordinances to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any nation, and as for his ordinances, they have not known them. Praise the Lord. And so for his mercy, for his infinite understanding, for his justice, for his provision, for his protection, for the seasons, and for his word, praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant, and praise is becoming.